Hi, this is Bob King with another episode of From the Chair, a podcast aimed at sharing new and important topics with financial advisors and other interested parties. And I'm excited today to have as my guest, Lauren Sir. Uh, Lauren has uh, carved out a niche talking about public speaking skills, communication skills, and working with clients throughout Canada, the US and the UK. And I'm really thrilled that uh, Lauren could join us today to talk about her book, which is called Unmute. Uh, Lauren, welcome Hi. aboard. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Glad to have you. Um, so what led to writing Unmute? What, oh what my, possessed well. you to take on that topic? It, it all started in March of 2020 when everything went nuts. <laughs> really and truly, in, when, when everything shut down in, uh, in, in last March, I knew that a significant number of my clients would not be prepared to go virtual with their communication. Um, I work with a lot of like, investment firms and, and banking and insurance and that sort of stuff. Institutions where usually the expectation is that you will be in the office unless you're traveling on work for work-related reasons, but also institutions where security concerns over telecommunication and, um, and online communication services prevented them from making any significant steps to go virtual before. So my thought was, well, I've been doing virtual for years on end. I'm used to it, but a lot of people won't be, and this will be a big old bucket of cold water. So I started reaching out to all of my clients saying, hey, you know, you've been a good client. I've worked with you for many years. How are things going with the Zoom meeting, with the virtual meetings? And invariably, every last one wrote back and said, it's a hellscape. Uh, maybe not in quite those words, but... <laughs> Um, some words were stronger, some words were milder, but the intention was the same. So I, I was asking them, you know, you know what, let me do a free 30 minute. Here is how you get the fundamentals of good virtual meeting communication under your belt so that you can still look polished so that things are a little easier. Had great uptake on it, of course. I wasn't asking for any kind of payment. It was just a way to help out during this crazy time. And then about a year after that, the calls saying, hey, we need you back in a really bad way started coming in. And what I found was going on was that in that first little bit of the pandemic, a lot of organizations were saying, you know, just give us the basics to get us through until we're back at the office. Thinking that it was going to be a few months that they could white knuckle their way through. And then when about the end of the, about the second quarter of uh, this year kicked in, it started to really settle into people that this wasn't going away. Not, not so much the pandemic, but virtual meetings, that the genie is out of the bottle and it's now a mainstream mode of communication. So you better get good at it. And that was what I wrote this book in response to. People were going crazy with it. They were stressed out. They couldn't manage their schedules. They still didn't know how to look good on camera. They wanted some help, but they also wanted to feel understood with their frustrations. And I thought, you know what? I can write a heck of a good book for you on this. Fun, <laughs> fast, funny, gets your feet out under you and gets you laughing at the same time. And thus, my book. Yeah, and I, I would 
caution potential readers that uh, they will be forced to laugh in various segments of the book. Uh, Make you laugh. Yes, you, you force it to happen. <laughs> so if you think back 18 months, you mentioned March 2020, we remember it well. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, how skillful were we 18 months ago using these virtual meeting mediums, right? Like what's, were we a three, a four? I would say an average, if I took an average, probably around a three or a four, because there were people who were very good at it. And those were the people who had been doing it before as part of their work. But most people, it was relatively new. You know, they had used FaceTime or they had used something like that, Facebook Messenger, uh, video chat to connect with friends and family, but using it in a professional sense in a business sense, was completely foreign. So they're showing up in hoodies and baseball caps with unmade beds behind them, having no idea how to light themselves, no idea what camera angles can do to your ability to communicate, um, no idea how to converse back and forth when there's things like delays or lags or a complete abandonment of all nonverbal communication, how much right. that affects the way we speak. So there were a lot of ones and twos but there were also a few sevens and eights. Okay. So, and if you bring that forward, like, so now we're September, 2021, like, have we made a dent? Have we, have you seen much progress? I have seen progress. Um, where I've seen progress is specifically in the teams where clearly they've put in effort into making progress where they've said, okay, this is how we show up. This is what we do across the board, as well as in people who started using, you know, individual solopreneurs or, or small business owners who said, you know, I have a great reach. I have a reach with this medium that I never had before, and I'm going to make the most of it. And they learned how to do it. They've made significant progress. The ones who said, I hate this. I want to do it as little as possible, but I have to do it all the time. Most of them have moved from maybe a two to a four. They're not wearing the hoodies anymore, but we're still looking up their nose. They're, they're still leaving their cameras off when everyone else's camera is on. They're still facing away from the camera doing mistakes like that. Yeah. So yes, larger proportion of seven and eights for sure, but still a lot of fours and fives. The uh, conclusion of the book, starts with six words. When we go back to normal, dot, dot, dot. So, I mean, have we found a new normal here? Like what's, what's your gut telling you about normal, whatever that means? I, I don't think we've found the new normal quite yet because what we haven't yet figured out is once people are back, once we're able to go back to the office as a standard or a normal choice of working, as opposed to extraordinary measures when you might be headed back home anytime. There's going to be another period of thrashing where we're figuring out hybrid meetings. So some people are meeting in one space and maybe, you know, maybe you have five people in one room and two or three people who are offsite and meeting elsewhere. And that's going to cause a, a new amount of thrashing. But for smaller businesses, for people running their own businesses, for people who are self-employed, 
I think that where we're at right now is going to be the normal. There will be more opportunity to meet people in person and you should absolutely take that. Absolutely. But there is so much opportunity for work in the virtual world. And there's so many advantages in terms of time management, in terms of cost savings for travel, all of that sort of stuff that we're not going to be getting away from this as a primary method of communication. So I guess we better get better at it. Yeah, you got to get good at this. It's not optional anymore. Yeah, so I'm going to just jump around a little bit as as things hit me. But one of the things that you uh, talk about uh, in the book is uh, having a pre-meeting checklist. Yes. So is the basement door locked, Lauren? (laughs) My kids are at school, so it's not. But that's because it doesn't have to be. (laughs) I just thought I'd check. (laughs) Um, I still, it's one of those things where every time I come in to my basement office, I do look at that sliding door and I decide, do I lock it or do I not lock it? And it is nice to be able to maintain a little more airflow down here by not having to bar my children entry. Hey, it's the new normal. It's the new normal. Pre-meeting checklists are fantastic. This was actually a carryover from much of the, from some of my public speaking and my in-person public speaking process. I don't know about you, Bob, but I find that before I go to give a talk or a presentation or have a really important meeting, my brain is entirely focused on that and not on all of the million little things that need to be done right. Things like have a pen nearby and then you're frantically looking around at that moment you need one or lock the basement door, turn off that noisy appliance, turn off the air conditioning all of those little things that will pile up and really bug you during the meeting itself, we so often forget them before we go on. So my approach is to let let your post-it notes or your notepad or whatever, let a piece of paper do the thinking for you and have that pre-meeting checklist. So you can go, yes, I've done that, 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 that. Okay, I can now relax when I'm in this meeting. I know the tech is going to work, because I've double checked it and I've checked everything off. And if the tech doesn't work, I've got my backup because I've prepared it. The list reminded me. It's like a pre-flight checklist and it really does save a lot of stress. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And I, I should just say to uh, our listeners that the reference to the basement door uh, is in the book uh, (laughs) and it is aimed at, at, managing some of those distractions like pets and children and things like that, that can happen. Right. I mean, and if they happen once it's kind of funny. And if it happens six times, it becomes less funny. So not so uh, funny after a while. Yeah. So the other uh, piece that drives my, it's a bugaboo for me is the eye contact thing. Because I'm always drawn to the image on the screen. Yep. As opposed to trying to focus on <laughs> the camera, right? And it just so unnatural, feels so unnatural for me. I want to look at 
at the image of the person I'm talking to, as opposed to into the camera. And I yeah. have to continuously kind of draw myself back to that green light. So, oh, I can see you clenching your jaw while you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. It's a bugaboo yeah. for many people. And, you know, don't beat yourself up for finding it difficult. Our brains were not built for this type of communication. This is not how we're wired at all. And I, people really need to remember this, that this is not how we're wired. So our nonverbal cues like eye contact need to be deliberate choices until they get to the point where they're habit. But the part of our brain, you know, the communication part of our brain is homed in on the face. We want to look at each other's faces because we draw so much information from there. We can see little minor things like changes in, in jaw tension to tell people what's, uh, you know, to give you a hint of how someone's feeling. Um, how are they holding their mouth? Where are their eyes at at any point in time? Do they look tired? We're always, always reading each other, scanning our environment, scanning our space for these kinds of cues that help us figure out what's really going on. So to take your brain away from the face and make it focus in on this little soulless black hole at the top of your screen, it's not normal. You're actually doing a lot of, of conscious overriding of your instinct to do that. And this, it's important that you do it, and I'll get into that in a minute, but this overriding of what is really ingrained instinctual communication behavior for humans is part of what makes video conferencing tiring. It's a great medium, but it taxes our brains because we have to consciously overcome our instincts. Now, why though is the eye contact important? We all know that we're not looking directly at each other, right? You you know right now that your face is down there, but I'm looking at my camera up here. Yes, but ma'am. that that's your frontal brain thinking. That's your frontal brain saying this weird thing is happening and I know what this behavior is from her, partially because we've spoken about it. But the part of the brain that really matters, that does all the feeling, does the, does the unconscious thinking for you, it's right back here. It's, you know, right back in the brain stem area. And that part of the brain says, ooh, she's looking at me. It's, it's not the smart part of your brain, but it's probably the most powerful part of your brain. That's the scary thing. Ooh, she's looking at me. And this response is so strong that in studies as to how people respond to YouTubers or news anchors or talk show hosts, the fact that those people are looking directly into the camera lens and the viewer, even knowing that it is not real-time communication, sees them looking at themselves. And for those of you who are listening, I'm using big old air quotes here. The brain still responds as though they do as though they are looking at you. So for you to make a connection with your clients, they need to feel like you're looking at them, even if you aren't. So you're using eye contact as a deliberate communication signal to show that you're paying attention to them, to show that you're focused on them. And that creates a very specific reaction of, oh, this person is focused in on me. I'm important. They're more trustworthy they're paying attention, all of that sort of stuff. It's just not the same if you're looking a couple inches below the camera. Yeah. And I mean, for financial advisors, uh, quite often this medium is used for one-on-one meetings, update Mm -hmm. 
meetings for clients, review meetings, sales meetings, potentially. Um, and they have, they do have to work at that eye contact piece, right? Because yeah. it's never the same as sitting across the table from someone, but uh, to the extent you can get good at the eye contact piece, it helps overcome some of those hurdles as well. It really does. And, you know, when we say you need to make eye contact, you need to look at the camera. You don't need to do it all the time. That would actually be really weird, really, really off-putting for many yeah. people to be staring at them relentlessly. So you sort of want to imitate the way that we would normally look at each other in a face-to-face -face meeting. If you were in person, you would make eye contact, but then you would look at your papers. And while you're thinking about something, you might look, you know, up and off to the corner and then you'd make eye contact again. And then you would check your notes. You would be looking around. So it's perfectly acceptable and even a good thing to do that on camera. I can check in with your face every now and then I want to. There is part of me that when communicating, I need to see that too. So that's fine. I check in, but then I move back up to the camera. So it's like you go back and forth and back and forth. And something that is, that's very important here too, is to make sure that, that that physical orientation remains the same, which can get tricky if you're using multiple screens. So I'm sure that, uh, that many advisors listening to this, they'll have client on one screen and then the spreadsheets or the information on another screen. And they end up spending a whole lot of the meeting with their face oriented towards the second screen instead of the screen where their camera is. And that can cause a huge disconnect because basically it's like talking to someone who's refusing to look at you. Are they paying attention? The normal nonverbal cues tell me they're not. So in those cases, what you can do to overcome that, you know, you, you can move the spreadsheets onto the screen where the camera is, or you can tell them, tell them what you're looking at. Let me look up that information. It's in a spreadsheet right here. So as I'm looking at your spreadsheet, this is what I'm seeing. And you tell them literally the thing that it is you're looking at and that their brain will say, okay, I know what they're doing. Or, you know, I think that I have that in another email. Let me go look that up. And then you go, you do your thing, you look away, then you come back to the camera. Okay, I found it. It's right here, blah, blah, blah. And you can carry on that way. So giving those verbal cues can help to overcome issues where you do need to look off camera. You're allowed to look off camera. Just let people know what you're doing. Yeah. Now, again, advisors will often have material that they want to refer to or share with the audience, whomever that might be. Uh, and so there are neat tools like share screen and whiteboard and uh, you know, things like that, that they can bring into play. What's, yes. what's your guidance? What's your sense of, of when to use, when to not use those sorts of things? Uh, I love screen sharing. Love, love, love it. It's, I use it very frequently in my own presentations or any time where you do want people to be quite literally on the same page as you. So if you are talking about specific information, if you're referring to a document and you're going to be referring to it for a while, share the screen so that they are looking at the same thing that you are. That's good. That is good use of tools. The other tools, particularly for one-on-one -on -one meetings, I find most of them are more trouble than they're worth. 
Because something you want to avoid is letting the use of the technology get in the way of the flow of conversation. So whiteboards is one of the big examples that I use in the book as it's a really popular, really popular item to use. I know people who are brilliant at it, who are just, they can, they can draw diagrams with their mouse like nobody's business, or they have one of those um, drawing tablets and styli, styluses that hook in that connect to the system. And so it's actually projecting. They're, they're able to draw with their hand and a stylus instead of using the mouse. And then everything works really well. But I know more people who struggle with it. Because it's not very, the, the one in Zoom I find, this is my bias, is not terribly easy to use. And I often can't make it do what I want. So my fiddling with it gets in the way of the conversation. If it works for you, Go crazy, but make sure that you're able to use it easily and quickly. My default mode is that aside from screen sharing, I avoid other tools because I need to know that they're going to work and too many of them are unreliable. Incidentally, only screen share when it makes sense. Once you're done looking at the document, take the screen down, let them see your face again. This is why you have your camera on. Yeah. Uh, so... Let's talk about camera on or camera off protocols, right? Mm -hmm. In a one-on-one -on -one scenario, it, I think it would be more rare for people to shut off their cameras, but in a, in a group setting, like a team meeting or, or a, in a presentation to a group of people, uh, like what's, what's the protocol? What's the, the etiquette around uh, cameras on, cameras off. Is it, does the participant get to decide? Should you try and deal with that in some other fashion? What's your mm -hmm. guidance? There's a, there's a few, a few angles from which to approach this for one-on-one -on -one meetings. It's if both people agree to have their cameras off, that's fine. If it is an external client or a sales call, anything like that, I basically let the client do whatever makes them feel comfortable. I come prepared on camera, looking professional, all of that so that they can see my face. And if they come on and never turn on their camera, that's fine. That's totally up to them. And I might sometimes, depending on how tired I am, say, you know what, I'm just going to turn my camera off as well, just to, just to make sure we've got nice clear bandwidth. And they're usually fine with that because their camera is off. Um, but generally my default is I stay on camera, but you do whatever you want. Now that's pretty easy to tell when you're working with teams. So you're working with um, maybe a couple employees, maybe you have a firm with, with six or seven people in it and you're all meeting together. You want everyone showing up in the same way. This is important because it really impacts the relationships in a team. Uh, the way that we communicate with one another can dictate how our relationships go. So if five people, on the call, have their cameras on, and Peter doesn't, because Peter never turns his camera on. He doesn't like having his camera on. And you know that you're going to show up, be ready, be prepared, and put in the effort to work with the camera to have the signals to be watched as we are when we're on video, but Peter won't. That sends a really bad signal. What he is basically telling us is that he is not willing to put the same amount of effort into the conversation that everyone else is. 
So when I get called in to help teams that are having uh, relationship problems now that they've gone virtual, more often than not, that is one of the biggest problems. They're not all showing up in the same way. This isn't to say that all of your meetings, it, it has to be the same way. Now, this isn't to say that all of your meetings need to be cameras on. Far from it, especially when you're working with internal teams, because this is tiring. It is really tiring to be on camera all of the time. Our brain is working overtime to deal with all of the signals. We do have to perform a bit. We got a mug for the webcam if it's all going to work properly. So it's really good to take breaks from it whenever you can, as long as everyone's camera is off. So look at the meeting you're having and to figure out what the purpose of the meeting is. If you're all going to be staring at spreadsheets the whole time anyway, why have the cameras on? You don't need to be looking at each other. You need to be looking at your documents. So take away that input. It will make it easier to focus. If it's a team huddle so that everyone can kind of check in with each other, see how everyone is doing, you're going to want to see those faces. This is relationship building time. Everyone has their cameras on. So you have to kind of figure, be flexible, but figure out what's the purpose and is it better suited for cameras on or cameras off? Then once you've made that decision, send out the meeting invite and make it very clear what's expected. This is a cameras on meeting. This is a cameras off meeting. It could be camera optional, but that always means cameras off. Let's be real here. Yeah. <laughs> as long as everyone knows how to show up. Sometimes Peter will not play ball period. And I occasionally find that this is more common in bigger, in bigger companies than necessarily in the, in smaller boutique agencies and whatnot. But sometimes it actually can become a human resources issue if people blatantly refuse to ever turn their camera on. So more often than not, as long as you set the expectation and communicate to them why it's important, they'll be on board. Yeah. I think the other, uh, scenario that's worth touching on is uh, when in fact you are in a more formal presentation mode. I think typically we feel chained to the camera, right? Like we should mm -hmm. sort of sit here and talk to the camera a bit, but uh, you are quite eloquent in the book talking about get up and move around. Like, you know, be mobile a bit. Don't be chained to the, to the camera, uh, to use that phrase, but uh, comment on, on your thinking there. That's a really good phrase to use, being chained to the camera, because to a degree you need to be, but you want to, you want to move around in the space that you have. That's the big thing here. And Within public speaking, it's the, the notion is, is that you move within the space you have. You've seen TED, many people here have probably seen a TED presentation where they've got the big red dot yeah. that they stand in. That's the space that they have to move around in. If you've got an enormous stage, use the whole stage. What you have on video camera is your frame, that frame around you. This is where you can move. If you sit stock still and don't do anything, I might as well be staring at a picture. What's the point? Again, the idea of being on camera is being able to see non-verbal expressions. So get your arms up, get your arms up above, above your table level. You want them basically, you want your hands to be seen, which I find usually is mid chest to shoulder level and gesture. 
Let people see you move around. Look away from the camera a little bit. Use the full space that you have at your disposal. Um, some people like to use standing desks for this reason. It makes them feel a little bit more mobile. And that's completely, that's a complete personal preference thing. I find that with standing desks, people tend to rock and pace a little bit. Yep. which can be a little bit in the distracting side. But again, if you can make it work for you, great. But don't be stuck to one spot and to one physical position. Get a little bit further away from the camera so that we can see you from the sternum up and then gesture. Let us see you move. With formal presentations, this is really important. It's part of what makes you enjoyable to watch and more compelling to listen to. So it will help people pay attention to you. Get used yes. to that camera frame. Play around with it. Yeah. Um, we all have attention span boundaries. Yes. You've well, you already heard about my attention span issues, Lauren? You giggled there when I said Sorry, that. I saw a squirrel. Uh, we all have attention span issues that uh, impact in our participation in, in virtual meetings. Is there science? Is there thinking around uh, like you've got 15 minutes to, to sort of make a point with someone virtually? What's the science around the length of meetings and the time you've got to really make that ideally you've got to make a point to make your uh, to get the information you want to get across to people, uh, primary in their, in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the time and the attention span thing is a really big issue because there's more going on mentally and virtual. Our attention spans get strained a mm. lot more easily. Now, if it's 45, if it's an hour or 45 minutes and less, not that big of a deal. We can manage it, provided that the conversation is moving along and things are interesting and people are actually interacting with one another. That helps us keep our attention span up. Now, I am always in favor of short meetings are better. Short meetings with one or two focused items, that's all you're going to discuss. You're only going to make one or two decisions. Those are always better because you can roll through them a lot more easily. That holds true with in-person just as much as it does with virtual where virtual starts to become really problematic is when you get into meetings that are longer than an hour, that are 90 minutes, or those training and information sessions, which I'm sure many listeners have sat through for your own professional development that are two, three hours long. I know a few people who've recently sat through day-long virtual training. It'll be impossible to pay attention. Oh, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. I find that for the most part, if you are more than an hour, you've lost people. If you're more than an hour and just, just doing the talking, people, you've lost people after the first 15 minutes. If there's a lot of interaction, and this goes with meetings as well, if there's a lot of back and forth, you can hold their attention for longer. But please don't keep them for more than an hour. A really good, if you're giving formal presentations or if you're in the situation where you might be giving a seminar, which again is an activity that I'm sure many of your listeners do provide and they are great. Take all those online seminar opportunities. Your reach just explodes. 
You want to make sure if you're doing one of those longer seminars that you are quite dynamic in your presentation style, really work on your on-camera skills. Make sure that you have back and forth with your audience in the form of what's called call and response. So you would ask your audience a question, how many people here have experience with this kind of investment? Type in yes or no in the chat box. You give them a specific instruction and they respond to you or you run polls and you do that regularly. Now they're responding. Now they feel like they're part of the conversation. You can hold them for a lot longer. If your seminar is going to be two hours, make sure you take a break at the one hour mark. 90 minutes, you can get away with no break. Two hours, nope, get a break in there, even if it's just five minutes. Three hours, at least one 15-minute break where people can get up and away from their computer. Yep. Don't do anything longer than three hours. <laughs> I hear you. The, uh, so if we took a different view of that for... Uh, the presenter, mm -hmm. um, I have seen folks schedule back to back to back to back meetings. And uh, it is difficult for me to, to expect that they're going to be top of their game by the time they get to the fifth one hour call on a back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back kind of basis, right? I mean, what those need to be spaced out a bit, don't they? Oh, yeah. We're so cruel to ourselves, Bob. We are so mean to ourselves. And, and I say it that way because, for the most part, we're doing it to ourselves. Again, especially solopreneurs, self-employed, um, small business. Interestingly, I find that it's anytime you're working with, anytime you're dealing with someone who has a high level of responsibility, regardless of the size of their business or organization, the higher the level of their responsibility, the more inclined they are to do the back-to-back -back meetings. And meeting over scheduling has always been a problem. But again, with virtual, this is an exhausting method of communication. You need to give yourself longer breaks because no, you will not be at the top of your game after hour three or four. You are going to very much be done. We're not even leaving ourselves time to go to the bathroom in between our meetings. And virtual meetings are particularly tricky with this because there is no need to change physical location. I don't have to get out of my chair so I can let it run just a little. I know I said I would only do 50 minutes, but we're still talking. It's still good. I can bounce to the next meeting really fast. They can wait an extra minute for me to get on. And that's what we do. We jam everything together because there is no need to change physical space. Right. I strongly recommend as often as possible, everything comes with that caveat. You do need to be flexible from time to time, but as often as possible, give yourself a 30 minute chunk in between your virtual meetings. Few reasons behind this magic number. First up, it shows as a tidy chunk of time in your online calendar. Most online calendars are divided into 30-minute pieces. So if you do schedule in a 30-minute, what I call transition time, it's easier to see it and to respect it. If you say, well, I'll give myself 10 minutes or 15 minutes by only scheduling a 45 or a one-hour long meeting, well, in your calendar, it shows up as either a full hour or close to an hour. So mentally... You've got that time. You've got the hour. 30 minutes, though, that'll always give you a gap. 
Next up, I love 30 minutes because it gives me the opportunity to both close down any loose ends from the meeting I'm coming out of and get geared up for the meeting that I'm going into. So you get out of a meeting, there's an email you need to follow up on or a document you have to send or a calendar invite that you need to send out. You can do that stuff right away, which looks great to your clients for you to be on the ball like that. Oh, ah, beautiful. You can do that stuff right away. Then you still have a few minutes to get up, get a cup of coffee, put the dog outside, go to the bathroom, whatever it is you need to do. Then you have a few minutes again to sit back down and mentally gear up for the meeting you're about to have. So you'll be sharp for that one. As that 30 minute time chunk really is the magic thing that gives you the ability to do all of that. And it ensures that you can't accept more than a few meetings a day. So it naturally helps you pulling back on that overscheduling habit. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes uh, uh, as we learn our way through the virtual meeting world, we, we often forget how important some of the visuals are too, right? Mm -hmm. the, so in the book, you talk uh, a fair bit about things like camera angles and lighting and backgrounds. I know you love virtual backgrounds. Oh, they're just the best. Open Oops. the door for a rant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's important. And body language is another visual piece, right? And yeah. so, you know, just talk, if you don't mind talking for a couple of minutes about that body language, like, you know, moving hands and moving around a bit uh, is acceptable, but be careful what other signals you're sending with body language. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny because this is inherently a visual medium. We're on camera to see one another, but many people think the visual stuff, quote unquote, shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter what my background looks like. It shouldn't matter what I'm wearing. Well, it, yeah, it does because you're presenting us with that information. So we take it in and we interpret it. And again, this is instinctual communication behavior for humans. If you want us to ignore the message you're sending, that's something else now that we need to be tasked with doing. Adds to the mental load. When everything visually makes sense, then your message is clearer. You're more trustworthy. You come across as more credible and more competent because we don't need to think around all of these, all of these other distracting pieces of information. So when it comes to things like body language, if you want people to feel engaged, but you're hunched over, your camera angle is down, and you never look up at them once, you are sending them a visual message that they are not interested, that you're not interested in them, because you won't face them. You won't look at them. Um, when it comes to things like gesture, a lot of the gesture has to do with being able to let people, to, to let people read how tense you are. Um, giving things a little bit more energy, you know, hand gestures isn't as critical, I find, as that eye contact and that body orientation being oriented towards the camera, but it does make you look a lot more dynamic. So it's interesting. So it's easier to pay attention to. The camera angles form a big part of those signals that we're able to send. So we've, you've probably seen this, Bob, right? The up the nose shot. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yes. You're Very attractive. Yeah. It's, it's just glorious. Nose hairs, nose hairs as long as the day. 
The other popular angle is what I like to call the recluse, where the person is disappearing into the bottom of their screen. But there's all sorts of the close talker, their whole face is filling. They're just so close to the screen that it's just like, wow, I can only see the middle of your face and it feels claustrophobic. The problem with these angles is that they aren't how we would be seeing people in normal life, in person. I am assuming you are not having the up the nose kind of meeting. That's, that's not what the business is. <laughs> um, so you don't want to create that in camera. You want people to feel like they're sitting across a table from you because that's how they would normally interact. And to get that right, that means raising the camera aperture, not just angling the camera, but raising the physical camera itself so that it's in line with your eyeballs and then sitting far enough away from it that you've got a little bit of space between the top of your head and the top of the camera frame, and they can see some of your shoulders and torso. That will avoid you crowding the camera so you don't get the close talker, but it also puts you at the right angle to have a normal conversation. That will help people relax a lot. So these little tight, these things that seem so small amount to a lot. And ultimately what we're looking at doing is recreating an in-person feeling and reducing distractions. So clearly visual is important, but so is the audio piece. Yeah. And again, in the book, you, you deal with issues like microphones and uh, also, though, you talk about voice and tone and sort of modulating your voice periodically doing or making some differentials there. So mm -hmm. again, can you just comment a bit on the, the audio pieces of the puzzle? Yes. With the audio in, in this, you know, in this form of communication, audio takes precedence over everything. So if your connection starts to go a little bit janky, if it starts to cut in and out or become garbled and overly delayed and digitized, turn your camera off. You need all of your bandwidth going into the audio because if we can't understand what each other is saying, there is no point to the meeting. And the frustration that garbled audio creates is instant and outsized. People hate it. So make sure your audio is clear. Part of that is understanding how your system, how your computer, your laptop, your, your, your speakers are picking up and delivering sound. So if you find that you have a problem with echoing, which is pretty common still, what's going on is that your speakers are picking, uh, sorry, your microphone rather, is picking up what's coming out of your speakers and feeding it back. It creates a feedback loop, an echo, and eventually a high-pitched banshee-like scream if it gets bad enough. It's terrible. Fortunately, the solution to that is very, very easy. I recommend um, earbud headsets. Like the one that came with your cell phone. You don't need to buy anything new or anything fancy. But cell phone earbuds work really well because for one thing, they pipe the sound straight into your ears. So the microphone cannot pick it up. But the microphones are also calibrated to only pick up sound from one direction and to be fairly sensitive. So they have good audio quality in them. Yes, headsets will do the same thing too. And I know that you were laughing because you're wearing, you're wearing the big headphones that, that I always tell people not to wear, but that's okay because you're recording a podcast. 
you're allowed, Bob. Um, but I do find very often people come on with those massive noise canceling headphones and the microphone that's, that sits in front of their mouth that's attached to the headphone. I don't have an audio problem with those. I have an aesthetic problem with those. They make you look like an airline pilot. It's weird. It's just, it's not the aesthetic that you want. But cell phone is, the cell phone earbuds aren't as intrusive. They're not as obvious. Of course, another option that you can get, especially if you're going to be doing a lot of presenting, like doing those seminars and whatnot online, is to get an external microphone. Um, you can find good ones for well under $100. They have good quality. Mine cuts out all of the background noise, so I don't need to worry about anything like that. And sounds good and looks good. So it gives you that extra layer of polish. And I'm going to cast back here now that we've addressed audio. So my brain is flipping around on us, Bob. I'm going to cast back for a moment to the visual piece again. Because you opened up the door for me to rant about virtual backgrounds and then I let it drop. Yeah, I thought I tossed you a lob ball there. You did. And I just got excited. And then I forgot, which happens. Yeah, please Your backgrounds, rant. my friends. Your backgrounds matter. And I want you to start looking at backgrounds as one of the best ways to create branding messages for your business and yourself as a professional. Like this, you've got your own canvas behind you that you can style in a way that reinforces who you are, what your business is, and what you, how you want people to feel around you. So the bare minimum is that it is neat, it is tidy, it is professional. Any office can work just fine. That's contextually appropriate. It's neat, it's tidy, it's professional. But if you want to level things up a little bit, start looking at saying, okay, well, what parts of my personality do I want people to see? Do I want them to see that I am meticulous, I am detail-oriented, I will never let anything go? Well, then maybe something like some minimalist art or a, a superbly organized and arranged bookshelf where things are in like, like just they're lined up just perfectly and in, in color coding and some, something like that, that reinforces your meticulous nature. Now you've branded your background to your personality. If you want to be the warm, huggy, fuzzy person that your clients can confide in, put in some softer lighting behind you or some textures, and that will create that feeling so you can brand yourself. But for the love of everything that's holy, do not take the lazy way out and use virtual backgrounds. They're awful. They're, they're just, they really, now, I will preface this by saying that I have encountered exactly two people who do virtual backgrounds well. Both of them are speaker friends of mine, and both of them took an enormous amount of effort to make it work. They've got the green screens. Yeah. They know just how much they can move around before the, their images become pixelated, and they match their lighting to the backdrop. But aside from that, they don't generally work. Biggest problem is that they cannot deal with movement. So what we were talking about with body language and moving around, if you've got a virtual background image or a blur to hide your messy living room behind you, as soon as you move around, the edges of your body become cut off and pixelated. So you gesture and you also lose your right hand at the same time. It's really jarring. It's yeah. really, really jarring. Um, so to make them work, you have to sit absolutely stock still. And that's not interesting. It is so much easier to just style your backdrop. Even if you are backed up against a plain wall and that's all people see, that is still good. 
it's neat, it's tidy, it's not distracting. There's also an element of a lack of authenticity when people figure out, oh, virtual background, what are they hiding? Why won't they let me see their space? That's weird. And now people are focused in on that virtual backdrop. So don't sacrifice the impression of transparency and authenticity that you want to give, which I'm assuming everyone listening wants to give, just because you couldn't be bothered to style your background. As you can tell, I'm a hardliner on this one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you do seem to have some opinions. Oh, but... yes, I've got feelings. I've got a bucket of them underneath this table <laughs> right here, Bob. I can give them to you. Well, and I would confess that early on in this uh, transition to virtual back in 2020, uh, I did monkey around with with those backgrounds. And yeah, we all did. Would find myself in Seinfeld's living room and stuff like that. But uh, and you know what? If you're settling in with your team and you're you know you're you're meeting with a couple of your or a couple of your professional colleagues to talk shop and have a laugh, go for it. Yeah. You know, put in Seinfeld's living room, stick the background from Maui in there, but not when you're doing business. Yeah. Pick your spot. Leave that for happy hour. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you know, the pick your spots thing makes sense on that topic as it does with many others. Uh, careful. Be careful. So on the visual piece, let's sort of start to wind this down by just talking about the people, the grooming piece, right? And it does still boggle my mind that there are apparently still some people out there who do feel that pants are optional. How many times did that one <laughs> member of parliament get caught naked on camera? Like yeah. the first time, you know what? stuff goes wrong. You're on camera for hours and hours a day. You might forget bad on the person who leaked the photo. But the second time after you have been publicly humiliated, no, no. The second time you're seeing if you can get away with it. Yeah. And yes, the pantsless wonders. There are still so many, so very many. Yeah. Wear pants. Please wear pants. They don't have to be hard pants. They do not have to be trousers with a perfect pleat down the middle. As long as when you suddenly need to stand up to grab the document out of the printer or throw the dog out of the room or whatever, you won't be embarrassed. That is good. That's good enough. So probably not Buffalo checked flannel jammy bottoms because it doesn't exactly work with the business suit that you've got on top. Probably not that, but you know, a pair of black athleisure wear, that's probably fine. As long as it looks okay. As far as the rest of the grooming goes, it is easy to overthink it, especially, especially for us women. It, it can be a little bit easy to worry a little too much about it. But again, the, the same notion as your background, you want to be professional and polished show up, as the client or as the other person would expect and want you to show up. That's the guiding principle. Sometimes that's going to be more formal. Sometimes that's going to be less formal, but consider who you're talking to and then meet their expectations. Um, I love to recommend that people figure out one or two looks that they feel good with. 
So go through your clothes, find a couple things that when you put them on and you go on camera, you say, you know what? That works. I like that. That works. For those of you who wear makeup, figure out like the basic makeup look that you can throw on in five minutes and makes you feel good on camera. And that becomes your uniform. I cycle through probably no more than three, maybe four, depending on the accessories I use, different looks when I'm on camera. It's the same thing that I just rotate through depending on who the, uh, depending on who the meeting is with. And as long as you feel good about how you look on camera, you won't be as distracted by your own image. So again, it helps to reduce that distraction. Take the time to figure out what these looks are. You are worth looking good and feeling good about yourself. It's a L'Oreal moment for you because I'm worth it. (laughs) But it matters to your message as well. Of course. And always know your audience, right? I mean, know your audience. Know your audience. Well, we've been at this uh, virtual meeting stuff for some time now, but it's very clear that we still have lots to learn. Uh, And while practice often makes perfect, uh, this is still a new medium for a lot of people. And, you know, they have to practice different elements of, of using this medium and become disciplined on certain fronts and, and just be cognizant of the fact that you are creating an image, whether you like it or not, you are creating an image, right? And that's, that's the basis behind it. Be intentional with your communication choices. We, we know that we need to be intentional whenever we're giving a presentation in front of a live audience. Everyone knows that. Or if we're suiting up to go to, a, uh, to go to a meeting with a really great prospective client, bring that same intentionality into your virtual meetings and you'll be able to figure this out. And as far as practice goes, you know, think about the experience of the person on the other side of the camera. That's what you're going for. What is that person experiencing? You can easily practice or play around with stuff by opening up a virtual meeting with yourself and just trying things out. That's how I came up with my basic wardrobe for this. That's how I figured out what looked good in the background behind me. But every time you're in a virtual meeting, that's a live opportunity to practice and iterate. And as we know, virtual meetings are kind of endless. So look at each one as an opportunity to try something out, see if it works. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't, there's another meeting. I'm going to try something else. Yeah. Well said. I, uh, uh, there is a lot of great advice in, in Lauren's book. Uh, again, the, the book is called Unmute. Uh, Unmute is followed by an exclamation point. So I think it's probably really called Unmute. Yes. It is the cry of the Zoom. Oh. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> The, dedi- the dedication, I'll, I'll, I'll read the dedication. It's to everyone who has ever yelled unmute or a variation thereof during the virtual meeting and to everyone who has ever had unmute or a variation thereof yelled at them during a virtual meeting. I think that covers all of us. Amen to that. <laughs> uh, Lauren, this has been great and, and the book is great. I would encourage uh, any... 
uh, one to uh, who, I mean, if you think you're really good at using this medium, uh, I would dare say there's still some stuff you can learn from, from Lauren's uh, book. And again, it's called Unmute. It's available all over the place. Uh, Lauren's website is laurensergi.com. And uh, her email address is lauren at laurensergi.com. And I suspect if you wanted to talk to Lauren more about uh, her services, her advice, uh, she'd be happy to hear from you. You bet. Email me anytime. I'm easy to get a hold of. And uh, we thank you for spending some time with us uh, today. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. And to our listeners, again, if you have topics for that you would like to uh, hear about on future podcasts, uh, feel free to email me at bob at thepersonalcoach.ca and uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, we are always trying to find topical uh, things to bring to you. So with that, thanks again for joining us today and signing off for, uh, for this episode of From the Chair. Bye for now.